Hello and welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and a home for stories about birds, brought to you by me, Bird Girl, and supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. This episode is all about nature, well-being and mental health. I want to understand more about how nature can help our minds. So I've got a flock of doctors for you today. One of them you might remember from his fantastic gardening tips last time. He's the GP and nature lover, Dr Amir Khan. I've also got two stories to share with you about the healing power of birdwatching. And nature beatboxer Jason Singh will be back talking to members of the band Northern Flyway about how they used bird calls, synthesizers and people's memories of birds to make songs that sound like nature documentaries. But before all that, I've recorded a little update from my garden about how the birds have been helping with my mood through lockdown. And also, of course, there's a raven update. Hello, I'm back with my patch diaries and it's a really nice day today. Um, The weather's been lovely, the sun is out, it's shining and the birds are clearly really enjoying themselves and for the first few minutes I've just been sat in my garden listening to the birds singing. Listen. I love birdsong and I've been spending a lot more time just pausing and listening in the past few months and I think I've grown to appreciate it more than ever. I think it's been such a difficult year for everyone, myself included, and I do feel like people have just naturally gravitated towards the outdoors, towards nature to try and make themselves feel a little bit better about everything that's going on, which I think is super telling. Honestly, having access to nature in that way, having access to a green space that I can just be in um, has been so important personally. I know I said this last week, but it does properly feel like spring is here now. It's been sunny for a few days now. And of course, the ravens are always what I'm going to be talking about in my patch diaries. I love them. Um, I'm always watching them fly around while I'm working out of my window. But they've gone really quiet in the last few days. I haven't seen them just sort of flying around as much, haven't heard them calling in the same way. And I thought that that was slightly suspicious in a good way, slightly interesting. So my family and I marched up into the woods this morning and went to go and have a look in the very old overgrown quarry where they bred last year and sure enough literally a meter under their um, nest from last year was a big clump of twigs which just it looks like it could be a nest basically looks like it could become a nest and that's super exciting ravens quite often breed relatively early I think and I think that shows that they could start laying their eggs in the next month or so which I'm really excited about and I of course will be keeping everyone updated with the ravens they've been one of my favourite lockdown birds I think So there you have it a raven update and some garden mindfulness Now I want you to hear the story of Josh Osoro Pickering, 
he sent this in and I think it sums up what we're going to be talking about today. I'm standing in mud on a sunny, windy day in Woodthorpe Grange Park in Nottingham. It's a large city park with a mixture of manicured gardens full of trees and bushes, both native and non-native, and then wilder parts that back onto gardens and allotments. I've been coming here regularly since the beginning of the first lockdown, nearly a year ago. I have dual British and Kenyan nationality, and both sides of my heritage have heavily influenced my relationship with birdwatching. As a child in London, I lovingly followed my dad around RSPB reserves, sitting in hides with a bird book and a pair of bad binoculars. He had grown up a country boy in Nottinghamshire, at a time when boys were allowed to ride their bikes until dark. His connection to these animals was more practised and intimate from his years sharing a playground with them in Sherwood Forest. He handed me down a lot of knowledge, which birds lived where and when, what to look for and listen for, how to be patient. In 2013, I travelled to Kenya, the country of my mother, and I was lucky enough to work in the great national parks that are so well documented in BBC television programmes. There, I learned a different kind of bird watching, from Maasai trackers who sought out species in ways reminiscent of hunting, but whose methods far predated the European safaris of the colonial period. My weapon was a Nikon camera with a good zoom, and I quickly learned to trust my peripheral vision, noticing a flutter or swoop, following the flight of a bird to where it had landed, and then stalking quietly to where I might get a good angle for a quick shot. This was a new level of excitement to bird watching, and as you can imagine, the birds were incredibly photogenic. I was hooked. Sadly, my Nikon broke on my return to England. And somewhere between the arrival of children and an increased focus on career, I neglected to get another one. I often thought about it, but maybe I also thought that Britain's birds would never bring me the excitement that a hornbill or a martial eagle had in the Maasai Mara. 2020 has clearly been rough for many people. For me, it's brought stress and anxiety that culminated at the start of 2021 with a diagnosis of trigeminal neuralgia, a stress-related chronic pain disorder. It sucks, and much of what is written on it is notable for its hopelessness. But amidst the pain and the stress that probably brought it on, I have found hope. My partner Emma has encouraged me to go out for more walks, and I've finally got around to getting a new Nikon. Booted in wellies, Woodthorpe Grange Park has become my stomping ground, and my regular visits have shown me that most of my new knowledge of the birds there has come when the camera is off. From regular visits and a patient eye, I now know which tree the jays sit in, where the gangs of long-tailed tits hang out, on which garden fence to find the wrens, and in which bush to often find the redwings. I stalk woodpeckers and buzzards with the same excitement I did in Kenya and sometimes think about how I must look to dog walkers as I stalk slowly with my knees slightly bent and eyes wide open. Every move I make is concentrated and mindful. And that, I believe, is what has helped me to overcome the initial hopelessness of my diagnosis. The same applies to whatever your lockdown situation may be. Focusing on existing in the moment is what keeps the mind calm and anxiety at bay. And what better way to do that than by engrossing oneself in the pursuit of our wonderfully diverse bird species. Even in a British city park visited over and over again, 
I found the paradoxical sensations of tranquility and excitement. Whether you have a camera and a diagnosis or not, a bit of mindful bird watching a couple of times a week can really make a difference. Sadly, stories like Josh's are only becoming more common. Dr. Amir Khan is a GP working in Bradford and he's seeing the effect that the pandemic is having on so many of us. The pandemic has taken a, a terrible toll on people's mental health for a number of reasons. If you're working through the pandemic, if you're a frontline worker, what you're seeing is just incredibly sad and tough and that will take a toll on, its, on your mental health. If you're in lockdown, if you're homeschooling, all of that is really hard. If you're being homeschooled, that's really tough as well. You're not seeing your mates mm. uh, and that will take a toll on your mental health. If you've had problems with your job, if you've been furloughed or made redundant. I'm seeing the effects of all of that throughout this last 12 months or so. Uh, and it's been, it has been hard. It's been hard for a lot of people. But I think certainly, you know, as soon as that first lockdown hit, and we were quite lucky with the weather in that it was, it was warm and it was, it was gorgeous outside. Mm. And, and we were in a really strict lockdown, which actually meant there were less cars on the roads, less planes in the sky. And we could actually hear birdsong. That this, this thing that drew us out, wasn't it? The, the, the sound of the birds drew us out and once we were out there we actually started seeing things that we we hadn't seen previously perhaps and I think people really connected with nature in a way that wasn't possible before because they had the time and they had the silence to do all of that as well I think that was really strong in the first lockdown I think it's important now as well but I think it really hit home then yeah this year must have been so difficult for you in particular. And I was wondering if I suppose you've gotten even more involved with nature to try and deal with some of that stress. Yeah, it, you know what? It was really hard, particularly in the first. Uh, well, no, the whole year has been. We had a really tough time in the first wave. I, I'm a GP. I look after people in the community. And a lot of my most vulnerable patients are nursing home patients. And we all know what happened to nursing home patients in the first wave. Sadly, we lost a lot of them. And those were the patients that I was used to seeing the most and knew the most. And it, it, it was really difficult to, to see the number of deaths in that frequency, to have difficult conversations with family members on such a frequent basis. It, it, it was really hard. Uh, and I, and I, I, th- I, I, there was one time where I come out of a nursing home and I was really upset about what had happened. Uh, someone who, who had coronavirus and, and was sadly dying. And I sat in my car and I was very, very stressed out. And a robin landed on my car bonnet and I watched it kind of dart in and out of this bush onto my car into this bush. And it was collecting bits of nesting material and, and, and going into this bush. And I'd watched it for about 10 minutes. And I, I realised at the end of that 10 minutes that I hadn't thought about what had happened in that nursing home while I was focused on that bird. And I think nature has a way of kind of taking you out, giving you that time that you need. And I'm not saying you should forget about the things that have happened. We mustn't. We must learn lessons from what's happened and how to improve. But you do need a break from it. And I'm a scientist, so I like to deal in science. I'm, you know, when people say, oh, I feel great when I go out for nature, with, with nature, that's because there are real physical changes going on inside of your body. So right now, as I'm talking to you, Maya, I'm looking out of my window and I can see a starling, a bullfinch and a cultit. 
And in my head, what's happening when I see them? Because I feel, oh, lovely, they're in my garden. But in my head, there are actually chemical changes going on. So, oh, I can see a collared dove now as well. So in my head, we've got neurotransmitters. These are chemical messengers that tell your brain a little bit about how to feel. And ones that are going off in my head now are dopamine and serotonin. And I'm feeling good because I can see these things. And nature has that effect on you. You also produce less of a hormone called cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And when you're out in nature, when you're looking at birds, when you're looking at any kind of green spaces, I guess, or blue spaces, depending on where you live, if you're lucky enough to live by the beach, then you produce less of this stress hormone and your blood pressure drops and your heart rate drops and you feel really zen again. And that's why people say stuff like, I'm going out for some fresh air after a heated argument or anything like that, because we know inside of us that actually going outside and taking that space and looking at these things, it actually makes a physical, physical difference. Nature really is helping people. I want to share another story with you that's been sent in by Samantha Smith from Reading. Having suffered with anxiety from a young age, I've always known that walking in nature helps distract me from overthinking. From the start of lockdown, the daily walk has been a major part of mine and my family's routine. Teaching our daughter to notice the sights and sounds of her immediate environment has reinvigorated a love of nature photography, which my daughter has embraced. The power of being in nature with my camera has restorative qualities for me, and even more so this Christmas. The challenge of not seeing family teamed with the death of my granddad just before Christmas left my mental health fragile. With his funeral on New Year's Eve, I found myself more anxious than usual and decided a solo walk was what I needed to organise my thoughts. Borrowing my daughter's new camera with a phenomenal zoom lens, I took the usual walk from the back garden. I've walked this route at least two or three times every week throughout 2020 and have had the pleasure of watching the seasons change my local environment. It was a grey, drizzly day which reflected my mood until I took the time to notice what was happening around me. At the top corner of the field, a squirrel was dancing its way through an oak tree, stopping just long enough for me to snap it mid-meal. Continuing in the walk along the hedgerow to the edge of a small wood, I noticed the most beautiful birdsong. It was so loud and prominent in the quiet of the field and I instantly lifted my mood, bringing a smile. I stopped to see if I could find the source of the singing, recorded its song and with the use of the zoom lens found a bird I recognised high in the treetops, a song thrush. I know I'm more aware of my mental health through this pandemic than I've ever been and this particular moment encapsulates what is so powerful about taking the time to notice what's always been there. We're often too busy to realise its potential and on this grey winter's day it really hit home how being in the moment, taking time to see and hear what's there in front of me, helped turn what could have been a bad day around. The relationship between nature and mental health is being explored by a team at the University of Exeter with the British Trust for Ornithology. People with more shrubs and trees and people with the higher abundance of birds in the afternoon were more likely to have better mental health. Dr Daniel Cox asked people to describe their levels of depression, anxiety and stress. Then he took into account other factors that affect people's mental health and was able to weigh up the benefit in their lives. We also modelled the amount of vegetation around the home 
And what we found was that if there was 20% vegetation around everybody's home, there'd be 11% fewer cases of depression within the survey population. So we suggest the greening of urban areas has the potential to deliver substantial mental health benefits and then economic savings from the treatments of that. If you don't have much nature around your home, Daniel says a bird feeder can make a big difference. It's really easy in the UK to attract birds to bird feeders and that then allows you to see a greater number of species closer and for longer. But also they have the advantage that so most people don't notice most nature around them most of the time. So you're walking around, you're involved in your like daily activities, so you probably don't notice the blue tits jumping around the trees or the dunnocks in the bush. But a bird feeders, if you see it there, it's like, ah, I'm supposed to look at birds there, there's, there's likely to be birds, and then so you're more likely to engage with them and then gain positive wellbeing outcomes. Thanks to studies like this, more and more doctors like Amir Khan are prescribing nature to their patients. I asked Amir how it works. Well, you have to pick your patients because not everybody, it's not for everyone. Yeah. Because even though the, it, lots of people will benefit from it, and I work in a very socially deprived part of the country, I work in inner city Bradford, and a lot of the people there have very deprived lives and the best that they can do is get their kids to school on time and food on the table. And saying to them, well, actually, if you spend some time in nature, it's just not applicable to them because it's not fair. They're doing the best that they, they can. I will certainly advise them about the benefits of nature, but I won't force it upon them in any way because life is tough enough for them for me to give them an un another unachievable goal. So you have to pick who will react to it well and who will benefit. Everyone will benefit from it, but who will react to it well? And so, yeah, I have those conversations really gently, you know, talking about what they do already. Can they do anything more? Uh, what, what, how do they feel about nature? Really kind of hold their hand and talk to them gently about the benefits mm. and get them to kind of see it for themselves rather than me saying I prescribe it sounds like I'm just giving it to them and saying right off you go there you go but it, you know we have to work together on it and it has to be an achievable goal and this is the other thing again I work in inner city Bradford and there isn't and this is the same for a lot of inner city areas and there's young people in these inner city areas who don't have access to green spaces and this is a real issue for me and these are the people who will benefit most from it and if we say to them right Spending half an hour every day in a green space will do you and your kids good because it's great for children's concentration. You know, when you're homeschooling now and you go, oh, my God, I can't because homeschooling is so hard. But actually, the whole basis of forest schools are based around spending time in nature actually improves children's concentrations and learning. So now is a great time to do that for kids. But if I say that to my families in inner city Bradford and say, look, if you get two buses to this place, you'll get to this gorgeous place and it'll be great for you. They'll just look at me and go, what are you on about? I can't afford two buses. Mm. So we have got to get these spaces to come to them. And this is a real issue for these inner city families. We've got to make sure the poorest, most socially deprived people in our communities have the access that other people benefit from. And right now that's not happening. Mm. I thought one project in particular that I found really interesting was the fact that you work with young people a lot to educate them about the health benefits of spending time in nature. So I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, it actually started off with me doing some work for ITV on, on, on the television and going to a school that were growing 
fruit and veg and eating it at lunchtime. And I just thought that is absolutely incredible. And I was just doing a report on it. I wasn't actually encouraging anything. And I thought, God, the schools where I work do not have anything like this. It's so unfair. So on that basis, I, I started going into schools and talking to them about about nature. And it is incredibly sad that these young people, children, don't, not, don't even have access to it, but don't even know about it. They're really keen to know about it, but sadly their, their lives don't lend themselves to that kind of thing because it's almost seen as a luxury for them. And it shouldn't be. It should be a right of everyone. And I grew up in that area. I know what it's like to grow up in, in those kind of places. And so I talk about, in a way that is applicable to them, look, what can you do? Can you plant a window box? Can you plant a small kind of tub uh, of bulbs in the winter and watch them grow through the spring? How can that school attract more wildlife into the garden? How can the kids play a responsible role in, in managing some of that stuff as well? Okay, you don't have a huge playground or it's all concreted over. Is there anything that we can do to just grow something small like potatoes in a pot? Really, really straightforward stuff or beetroot. Things that are easy to grow and there's tangible benefits to. And actually, you know, yeah, you get kids who are like, oh, what are you on about? But then you get loads of kids who are really, really interested. I think it's so interesting because it's so easy for people to assume that young people just aren't interested and that they'd rather just, I don't know, look at their phone. So I love how you're talking about how enthusiastic they are. They are. They just need the method by which to, to go to these places. or the, almost They almost need the permission to go to these places and say, you know what, do go there. Have Get yourselves muddy and dirty and enjoy yourselves. And, 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 and often they don't they don't have it and it's it's through no fault of the parents or the teachers because the parents are doing the best they can the teachers are doing the best they can it's just unfortunately the way the system is set up that particularly the most deprived people tend to just not get the access and the rights to the access to these green spaces but we we have really got to keep talking about this to make it change right now it seems hard to argue that young people don't care about the environment but according to academic research If you're under 30 living in a city in the UK, and especially if you're in an ethnic minority group, you're likely to be considered less connected to nature. That's according to Dr Joe Birch from the University of Sheffield. Joe is worried that if you fit that description, your voice is heard much less in debates about nature, conservation and wildlife than your wealthier, or if you're a person of colour, white peers. She thinks that part of the problem is the questions we ask people to find out if they're connected or engaged with nature. She says they're often the wrong questions and can exclude some of our simplest and most pure experiences. So Jo and her team have been starting their own conversations with young people in Sheffield. She told me some of the stories she heard. I was hearing from people between about 17 and 27. I particularly wanted to hear from people who were living in poorer parts of the city and people from ethnic minority backgrounds. And I wanted to know about their experiences of nature and whether nature had any sort of impact upon their mental well-being. 
did it. Yes, so in a nutshell, absolutely. And it's the everyday sort of noticing of nature that really was interesting for us. That's what we heard about with this. And it had particular impacts for young people, quite different from older people I also heard from. And so there were middle-aged people and older people as well. But the young people had very different stories to tell. It was about how nature doesn't judge you, for example, doesn't kind of judge you like people do. You know, young people are really facing up to lots of difficulties, lots of pressure from school, lots of expectations, lots of judgment on social media. And the special thing about being in a natural environment or being outside with wildlife was that actually nature just lets you free of that. The conversations became a research paper called Nature Doesn't Judge You, how young people in cities feel about the natural world. That was a direct quote from one of the young women, I'll call her Jen, we used, this is a pseudonym for her. Mm. Um, so Jen told us that and it really struck home what she was articulating, what, what lots of other young people were saying, that nature doesn't, for example, one guy, Rog Wan, we'll call him, he said that, that nature sort of tells him, you know, you don't need to be racist and nature doesn't judge whether you're brown, black or white, he said. So we heard these kind of stories over and over of this non-judgment and another woman, um, Farid, a young woman who was escaping from loneliness and feeling physically ill at one time. She had lots of distressing feeling. She said, my friends weren't there for me. And that's when nature really helped me out. And I could forget everything and everyone, she told me, and admire nature and get peace and everything. So we found that this very particular message from nature was quite, quite powerful. And we tend to think, yeah, young people are just stuck on their screens. They were so reflective and thinking, do you know what? I need a time for a screen break. And this is all pre-COVID, but there's lots of recognition that young people just want to get away from those phones and those screens. And the real world offered something uh, that they really wanted and that they also recognise as really, really valuable for, for them. And the stereotypes, I think, come in, in part from in the past, we've either tended to think like young people are going to be saviours of the environment or uh, young people don't know enough. You know, they're, you've lost nature words or you've lost proper scientific description. And actually, that doesn't matter in terms of helping your mental well-being. Just being out there and experiencing it is something that is really, really uplifting or really gives you a sense of escape um, or gives you a sense of connection with something other than you and, and what young, one young woman called your social bubble. Mm. I love that you mentioned like people not having to know scientific names and things like that to engage with nature because I feel like preconceptions like that are really highlighted in that generational divide where there's this really traditional idea of what engaging with nature is and when people I know can't really apply their experiences to that it's like oh you don't you, you don't go outside then you do, you don't know yeah and that's really problematic you know Maya because um there was there was a guy uh, Danny I remember he said you know I'm not really into nature <laughs> he said this and then in the next breath he told me countless examples of how he noticed the leaves falling of how the bird song back at his mum's house on the outskirts of the city was so much more beautiful than the sound of shouting in the city where he was he was spending some time in the centre and he was full of these stories about going to this place with running water in the city centre where there was plants planting and trees but I think he believes that because he's not living up to that expectation of being someone with lots of nature knowledge he thought he's not a nature person and it wasn't true in that he really got so much well-being value that he was able to tell me. Mm. One, of, one of the reasons I was so interested in speaking with you for this episode is because I do a lot of work 
taking BAME kids out into the countryside and giving them that opportunity to engage with nature. And when I started um, my charity, Black to Nature, a lot of the feedback I got was that there are just certain groups of people who have no interest in engaging with nature, who have no ability with engaging with nature. And I love that we're getting more and more solid proof that that is absolute nonsense. Yeah, me too. This is what we got very excited about with this study because it really is only when you start to ask people different kinds of questions. So if you're looking at maybe numbers of kids who study nature, who learn names or have the hardcore nature books in the house, we might get this idea that it's not for them. But when you ask questions about, you know, what do you notice if you're outside or what would nature say if it could speak to you? And this was an incredible question because we heard all kinds of ideas about really supportive messages that trees would give, that animals would give, that just a landscape or a sunset would tell you, keep going, you're doing really well. And when you ask a different kind of question and you come from the starting point of a person's life, then you get uh, you get so much more and you realise that it's these mundane, everyday interactions with nature. And it's a city, it doesn't have to be in a special world place. It can be in a city at the top of a car park one young woman talked about this beautiful view of a sunset and it just made her day and that for her is nature and that sort of story needs to be listened to and and validated really it was so interesting to talk to joe about the experiences of young people in sheffield and it made me want to ask dr amir khan how he found his way into nature yeah, I, it's an interesting question and then I don't really have a, an answer to it because I didn't have a garden really. We had a backyard where the car was parked and that was it. And, you know, it was a two up, two, two down and, and I shared a bedroom with my sister. So we didn't really, and I used to go out to the woods and the parks as you did when uh, back then, but I wasn't really that interested. It wasn't until, and I, I was really interested in nature. I used to watch nature documentaries with my dad and we used to talk about it, but we didn't have any access to it growing up. And it wasn't until really I had my own house that and I started feeding the birds that I really developed this this interest so it was very late so the moral of that story is it's never too late to start and now I just idle away hours just looking out the window and uh, and, and and watching them so it is never too late to start and don't think of yourself as a non-expert you don't have to know everything about them just looking at them and enjoying seeing them is good enough if you want to look at what they are and 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 know about them brilliant but you don't have to you can just enjoy watching them Mm. is anyone else in your family particularly interested in birds like did you grow up with your parents taking you out into green spaces or is that something you developed by i think it was something i my my mum and dad were you know, they, they, my mum, she worked a couple of jobs. My dad was a bus driver, so he was always working shifts. Uh, so they didn't really have the time to take it. When they took us out on the weekends and stuff, we'd go to the beach and that kind of thing. But but we wouldn't go to the park or to the woodlands with my parents uh, just because they were so busy. And there were seven of us all together. I'd, I've got six sisters, so they had their hands full. Uh, and and so, but it, yeah, I'm not complaining. They did a wonderful job. They're fantastic. Uh, it was through nature documentaries. You know what it was, Maya? I remember really distinctively one day in school, we were learning about woodland animals. Uh, and I must have been about six or seven years old. And uh, in the middle of this book, there was a double page spread of nighttime woodland animals. And there was a fox and a badger and a deer and an owl. I remember it so clearly looking at that th- those pages in the book thinking, I can't believe those animals actually exist. I've never seen 
any of these. How is this possible in the country that I live in, that these animals live here in the woods, apparently, and I've never seen them? And, I, and, and that kind of feeling, I remember feeling slightly bereft in the fact that I had, I didn't understand the feelings at the time, but, but now I kind of do thinking, God, people are seeing these animals all the time and I'm not. And, and I did feel like I was missing out on something. And I think as I've grown, I've understood that better. And I imagine there's lots of children, young people out there who feel like that, who may not be able to articulate it as I couldn't back then, which is why now when I see a fox in the garden, we get three foxes in the garden on a regular basis. It's just incredible. And my mind always takes me back to that book. I have no idea what book it was, but I remember that picture. And, uh, and I imagine there are children looking at pictures in books right now of animals that are probably just a few hundred yards away from where they actually are, who've never seen them. Uh, and we've got to change that. We've got to change it. Do you have any advice for kids like that who are growing up in really inner city areas, really urban areas, on, you know, the small ways that they can try and connect with nature, even in these very urban spaces? Yeah, I, I think I wish what someone had said to me when I was at that age is you don't have to have a garden to get nature in, into there. You know, if you that that little yard I had, I, you know, my mum or dad, had I spoken to them about it, but I just again, I didn't really understand it then. Had I spoken about it, could have easily put up a bird feeder or a flowering plant that will attract bees and insects. You know, you don't need uh, uh, any soil. You just need a pot with some compost in uh, a bird feeder. You just need a hook uh, uh, to hang on uh, and, and and so, so I think if you're a parent, so it'll be difficult for the children, I think, listening to this, if they're very young to do anything. But if you're old enough, speak to your parents about how you can make your tiny space or big space, whatever it is, just how you can attract something in. Mm. For, oh, there's a sparrowhawk just come into my garden, Maya. I don't know. I always, no, oh, wow. I always get that feeling going, not my birds, but then you have to eat as well. I'm always kind of caught in between that. What do I do? <laughs> so I, I'm just watching it. No, I know what you mean, because I, I understand the circle of life, but at the same time, I feel very pleased as all the birds fly away. Yes. In time. Um, speaking of birds, so Amir, each fortnight, we ask someone to pick a bird that they love watching themselves as our bird to watch for the people listening. So I was wondering what yours would be. I think for my garden birds, my favourite bird that comes along, I think, is got to be the wren because it's it's just so small, but it's so entertaining because uh, uh, it kind of it gets into all the nooks and crannies of the garden and comes out with little tidbits of food that other birds just can't get to. And it's got such a beautiful singing voice as well. And it's so loud for such a tiny little bird. And I think because it's so small and a bit, uh, you know, I don't think it's dull, but it can be thought of as dull uh, looking bird. It can often get overlooked, but I just think it's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, I'd like a red. If I could go wider, Maya, my favourite bird in the whole world is a harpy eagle. I just think they are incredible. Is it yours too? No, I just, on both of them, our tastes match up so much. I love that I found someone who is as big of a defender of wrens as I am, because I think they're brilliant. I think they're so they're overlooked because so... they're brown. Yes. Um, and harpy eagle is one yep. of my favourite birds in the world. Um, so you have excellent taste, I have to tell you. Oh, um, Thanks, Maya. So do you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I have to ask as well, if you were a bird, what bird would you be? Oh, I would I would have to be. Oh, it's such a tough one. I think I'm going to say red kite because they always just seem to be up flying in the sky. And uh, and I think that would be an incredible place to be. Uh, uh, so, yes, I'd, I'd go for a red kite. 
You know what, Emma? This has been absolutely fantastic. You're so full of knowledge. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, Maya, it's my pleasure. And thank you for all that you do. It's always such a joy to talk to Amir. And I found it really moving to hear how, as a kid, he just couldn't believe that the wildlife in his school books was really out there. And I love that it was putting up bird feeders that really got him hooked on nature. I think birds are such a good entry point. Now, I want to take you outside of the city. I think a lot of farmers, if you're a tenant farmer, you've got to make that rent. You tend to just concentrate on producing whatever you're producing and getting your income. I grew up in a really rural area, surrounded by farmland and knowing loads of farmers in the community. So I know what a tough job farming can be and why it's often difficult for them to worry about the wildlife as well as their livestock or crops. This is Nikki Saunders. We farm about 160 acres near Kenilworth in Warwickshire. It's a small mixed farm. We've got a suckler herd of about 50 animals. We run 20 stables. And we've got one or two other enterprises on the farm. We, we rent out 50 acres of our arable land to a local contractor. We have a cottage that we were running as a holiday let and we have an office that we rent out to somebody. So a real mixed bag as far as farming is concerned. We, we got to a point farming-wise where our income was, was not sustaining us. We've got four children. Despite the stress of running the farm, Nikki has found a new love for the land thanks to a scheme to help birds set up by the Warwickshire Wildlife Trust. It's run by Ian Jelly. Our priority over the next few years is trying to help encourage 30% of the land area in the UK to be set aside for nature's recovery. And what it basically focuses on is trying to help farmers make space for nature on their land whilst they're also allowing them to maintain productive farms. So we're advising farmers on how they can allow wildlife to exist on the farm and support the wildlife that naturally occurs there whilst maintaining food production. So with this project, we worked with a number of farmers across Warwickshire. Seven Trent provided the funding to install uh, tree sparrow nesting boxes, and then we created lots of habitat on the farms while bird seed crops were grown. So rather than the farmers planting crops for us to eat, they were planting wild bird food crops for the tree sparrows and other farmland birds and then we were also providing supplementary feed or rather the farmers were providing supplementary feed to the tree sparrows during this crucial period the kind of the hunger gap during January and February and that project's been running for two years now and it's part of the wider project that we've got working with farmers where we're trying to encourage them to increase their understanding of farmland birds and other wildlife and how they can help support them. I thought, wow, wow, you know, this is something we want to join because we, we used to be organic for many years and we kind of always felt a little bit on the fringe, you know, farming-wise. We farm very extensively, we know all our cattle, we know our land, but when we were organic there wasn't much support around here, you know, we were fairly isolated and, and when we ran into problems with docks growing in all our fields, it just got harder and harder to do it and we had to pull out a certification in the end, but lots and lots of those principles we still farm by um, and so when I saw this wildlife group I thought oh 
great. And it was just like, how wonderful is this that we can meet similar-minded people? And although we thought we were farming quite environmentally, you know, my, we knew nothing. We knew nothing in terms of why have we got no skylarks on our land? What what can we do? And they're so generous in their time. They, they've come round to the farm. We've had a guy who comes and regularly monitors the birds. So it's been a real eye-opener. The work with Seven Trent's Great Big Nature Boost has been all about protecting tree sparrows because their numbers have fallen by 93% in recent years. While most of us will know house sparrows, tree sparrows are a little bit different. In my opinion, the easiest way to tell them apart is that tree sparrows have a black spot on their cheek, while house sparrows don't. But another easy way is just by looking at the habitat that you're seeing the bird in. So, how are Seven Trent and the Trust helping tree sparrows? Well, they're building them villages. We laughed quite a lot when we were coming up with the idea of the project because we were liking the Tree Sparrow Village to a bit like an episode of Location, Location, Location on the telly, really, in that when you're looking for a new home, you might want to be quite close to your mum and dad or to people that you know. So having a Tree Sparrow box next to other Tree Sparrow boxes is really important. And for people that aren't familiar, it looks like a normal bird box, but it comes with three boxes joined together. Or you can buy normal bo bird boxes and put them close together. They need to nest in colonies, essentially. And then also, you know, drawing the analogy of houses, it's really important that the kids feel safe. So the boxes need to be placed near hedgerows and, and somewhere they can hide away from predators. And we thought it might be useful for them to be able to pop to the local shop. Now, obviously, tree sparrows don't go to the shop, but for them, that means having nectar-rich food sources for fruit, seed-bearing shrubs, uh, insects, or a range of different food sources at different times of the year. And then, like people, as well as having local shops handy to them, it's important to have a big supermarket so you can go and do a big family shop or, or get something at scale sometimes if you want to increase things. And for the tree sparrow, that's about the crops that are planted by the farmers that provide much more than just an individual hedge or, or a bush. And then, like people, in the winter when it gets cold, you want to feel warm and you want to keep your energy levels up. For tree sparrows, having that supplementary feed during the coldest part of the winter can help their energy levels and, and be literally the, the difference between winter life and death for them. And then with people, you know, having the local pub is really important. Now, tree sparrows obviously don't go to the pub, nor, nor do we during COVID times. But having tree sparrows, having access to water is really important. So being near a pond or a river or even in people's gardens, having a water source or a bird bath is, is really important for them too. And then they use transport links rather than roads and footpaths like we use. Tree sparrows use connections in the landscape. So hedgerows, rivers are corridors for them to move from one site to another. But that's also when everybody can come in, because if you've got a green space near your house or a garden, you can provide a stepping stone for tree sparrows to stop on their way to getting to a new habitat. And then the last thing that we kind of think about is the fact that they need good neighbours like, like everybody does. So actually thinking about locating the nest boxes as part of the project where existing colonies of tree sparrows were to help them try and grow out from that stronghold is really important. So, yeah, we, we try as, as much as possible to think like a tree sparrow to help them recover. Nikki's been putting up nest boxes all over her farm and she said paying more attention to the birds has been really meaningful for her. 
I was thinking today when I went up the field to field a little old pony that I feel and I always take the bird seed with me and the dogs and, and it was a really grey, miserable morning. It was raining, I was wet already and, and you know, you just can listen to the birds and I'm not very good at identifying them in flight yet or their song. I'm really learning. But, yeah, you know to be aware of their life. And and I was just watching, you know, we, I heard a woodpecker yesterday. I, it, it's just there, it's just there. And going to the group, it's no longer just background noise to me. It's part mm. of my everyday and I'm looking for it. It's wonderful. We probably underestimated just how beneficial it can be for, for people to connect using nature. And, you know, that's the same for farms. It's the same for anybody anywhere. Um, nature is, a, is an amazing uh, topic that can unite people from all different types of backgrounds. And, you know, a lot of the farmers that we, we work with, they don't know every bird on their farm, but they just enjoy seeing the variety. And they're very keen to share their stories and, and come together. And the camaraderie and the communication between the farmers when they were putting up their next, next boxes and sharing photos and and the joy was incredible and it's great to see and it's you know is is really important for the wildlife that we're trying to help but it's also really important for the people if if we wanting to bring wildlife back then we need farmers to be the custodians of the landscape and to help support with nature's recovery and to do that farmers need to be happy and to be comfortable and to be working well Talking about mental health issues in this episode has been really important for me because it's something that's touched my life and as the pandemic goes on, I hope this has helped you to feel that, as Dr. Amir Khan said, nature isn't a luxury. Whether it's hearing birds in the trees, watching ducks swimming, or seeing a gull gracefully land on top of a car park, we need wildlife in our lives for our well-being. I'd love to hear how this episode made you feel. We're on Twitter and Instagram at GetBirdingPod. And subscribing to the podcast would mean so much to me and help more people find our community. Let's end with a story about how birds have inspired musicians. If you're a regular listener, you'll know nature beatboxer Jason Singh by now. This time, he's talking to Inga Thompson and Jenny Sturgeon from the band Northern Flyway. Jason worked with them and you can hear his beatboxing on this track, Rose Finch, as well as Inga's son. Birds are really delicate too. Like, you would think that they're really howdy, but they're delicate. They're living. Inga, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your love of birding? <laughs> yes. So, my name is Inga Thompson and I come from the island of Fair Isle, which is in between Orkney and Shetland, the North Isles. And I would never have classed myself as a birder. I grew up loving sound and so the sound of birds was, was around me um, all the time with, with growing up and I kind of travelled alongside them. Hold fast to the branch, will I rest in your hand, soft and light. Shelter from rain
Could you tell us a little bit about the birds that you grew up around and their names? My absolute ultimate favourite bird is the lapwing. We call it the peewit and it makes the most ridiculously unusual noise, like an electronic instrument. I'm going to move over to Jenny. Could you tell me a little bit about your love of birds and what you do? Yeah, my name's Jenny Sturgeon and I grew up in Aberdeenshire. My folks were really into wildlife and my mum became the go-to person to bring injured birds to. So we had a crow for a little while and some pheasants and there was a kestrel and that just felt like a normal thing, having these around the house. Two score dark hours on the wing Four score of us when we left off Lost some astray on the drift Now I count three Instead of going straight into music, I went into studying European shags from a PhD, which never gets old. The, the jokes are still funny. <laughs> and then kind of throughout that time was doing more and more music. And it made me realise that I could do a similar thing, like still observe birds and their behaviours, but write about them in song and be inspired by them that way. And I think it was at Edinburgh Folk Club, the organiser came up to me afterwards and was like, it's a little bit like being in a nature documentary coming to one of your gigs. <laughs> and I kind of realised that it was feeding into everything I did. Cities are an important habitat for birds too. It's also nice just mixing man with nature and cities. Swifts. I think everyone's favourite bird is a swift. What's your favourite bird? Not a swift. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to arrive, they're early to leave. working with bird calls at the time I was still working in ecology and so I was kind of doing a nine-to-five roughly a nine-to-five in an office which is quite difficult up in Scotland in the winter and particularly the further north obviously in Shetland you know going to work in the dark coming home in the dark not really getting a lunch break or having a, a window that you can see out of an office in it's really it's depressing um, and sitting listening to these bird calls of an evening when I was working on music projects it's just like suddenly I feel like I had more energy and it's because I'm listening to a dawn chorus at seven o'clock at night when it's been dark for four hours <laughs> and that is was really eye-opening for me it's like well if I'm ever feeling a bit lethargic in the winter or you know there's times when the weather's so bad and you can't get out for days it's just 
put on a blackbird singing in the spring and your mood just like switches straight away. I'd like to fly like that and never touch the air. I'd like to fly like that and never touch the air. It'd be really lovely to hear about your thoughts on what Northern Flyway is and how that project came about. Um, the idea came to me because I'd been working on a project about St Kilda and wrote some music inspired by the landscape and the amazing species that there are there. And I thought it needed to have some field recordings in it. And so that ended up inspiring melodies for that project, but also just being in the studio. We all had massive smiles on our faces because we were listening to these bird calls and interacting with them. And it made me think, oh, I really want to explore this more. And being aware of Inga's music and being a massive fan of hers, just got in contact and said, how about this? It was just so cleansing and so joyful. So it ended up being more of a celebration of bird experiences and just the things that we love about the birds and nature. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the actual gigs themselves and what people experienced? Because it wasn't just a gig, it was quite a unique audio and visual sonic experience. <laughs> Very early on we realised that in order to sort of do it justice, we really needed to have visuals to go along with it that we could interact with, that interacted with us and the bird calls. So the bird calls were kind of like a fifth member of the band and then these incredible visuals. It includes various different things, sonograms of the birds and all this footage of the birds themselves and the landscapes they're in. There's projection mapping of the various different film elements onto different bits of fabric and onto ourselves as the musicians and it was just really interesting hearing the feedback from audiences people saying you know it's like watching a David Attenborough documentary but with really good music and somebody said at one point I forgot I was human and thought I could fly it's like oh we've done our job <laughs> that was Northern Flyway talking to Jason Singh we'll leave you with their track The Curl You Get Birding is supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. I'm Myrose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, and this is a Peanut and Crumb production. Thanks for listening. Says to him, my love, we're nearing the rock. I can taste the soil.
Show to 